for today. Well, we are in the book of Acts this morning, and we are in chapter 14. And so if you have a Bible, please turn to chapter 14. I'd intended to preach on the whole chapter, but there's simply too much to say uh, within uh, the, a reasonable amount of time. <laughs> so if you would, would you stand if you're able? Let's ask as uh, we confess uh, our need. Lord, oh God, we need illumination. We need your spirit to gather up the powers of our ears and hearts and minds and for him to open up to our understanding and to so shape our wills that we would live out uh, what you would say to us today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. (laughs) Acts 14. At the beginning, now at Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who'd borne witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, to the surrounding countryside. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well. And in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, And Lakotian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. You may take your seats. In August of 1914, Ernest Shackleton and a crew set for sail uh, to Antarctica. 
They had no idea what they were about to experience. It was the beginning of one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest survival story in the 20th century. Five months into their journey, the ship Endurance was trapped uh, in the ice, no radio, and the closest place in civilization was a thousand miles from there. The crew could only hope and wait that their boat would be released. Nine months later, to the crew's horror, the ice crushed the Endurance and sank her to the bottom of the ocean. Never one to give up, Shackleton, who was an amazing leader of uh, men, ordered his men to march uh, toward South George Island, where there was a whaling station. It was a distance of 800 miles altogether. They spent five months dragging lifeboats and supplies uh, over the ice, making about a mile and a half's progress each day. To keep up uh, morale, uh, Shackleton had them uh, engage in dog sled races and sang songs. In April of 1916, they reached uh, open water. They're 20 months into this journey now, and Shackleton and five others set sail in an open boat with only a sextant. And for 17 days, they battled with horrific storms and exposure to the elements. And when they reached land, they discovered they were on the wrong side of the island from the whaling station. And so they tracked over uh, unexplored mountains and glaciers without any equipment or food except a 50-foot length of rope. Can you imagine what that would have been like? to be exposed that way, to be at times wet in sub-zero temperatures. They didn't have Gore-Tex. They didn't have any of the things that a modern expedition would take uh, with them. No power bars, uh, nothing like that. They ate seal. Uh, uh, that was mostly what they had uh, to eat toward the end of their time. And yet not a single man was lost of a crew of 28. Now we have in our text this morning another survival story. Paul and Barnabas come to city after city and they preach the gospel and the gospel divides the city. And some people are so angry that they stone Paul and leave him for dead. And the center of gravity... Uh, in the stories I've just read to you around the conflicts uh, that happen because Christianity is inherently divisive. The gospel is both subversive and submissive at the very same time. It's subversive in that it challenges everything that pretends to be God in our lives. And it's submissive because it requires those who follow Jesus to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, if you're here and you don't believe anything we do, we're honored that you're here. And the main thing that I hope you can see in this passage is that we all have things that we name all as ultimate things that are gods. 
and they enslave us. They're actually empty. And you, dear Christian, you're not free from the challenges of these things either. But as Christians, this passage summons us to engage in a mission using that same strategy and principles the Apostle Paul does. There are actually six in this passage, and we don't have time to examine three of them this morning. Now, Paul and Barnabas are on the first missionary journey, and they reach Iconium, the very edge of the region of Phrygia. And they preach boldly, they encounter stiff resistance, but they're not intimidated. The city's divided, and a plot is hatched. Uh, in order to put them, not just mistreat them, but to put them uh, to death. Word reaches them, and they flee to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derby. Laconia is another region in the Roman province of Galatia. Now, why does Luke tell us this? Well, we should be curious about how it is that this story is told, because we have a very high view of Scripture, and it's worthy of a close reading. Now, ancient historians tell us that these two cities, Lystra and Derby, were only a part of the Roman province of Phrygia, uh, excuse me, Laconia, for 35 years. And so it puts this in a place and time. But Luke consistently is doing this because he describes Paul's journey in terms of the political geography of the Roman Empire. It's Luke way of signaling Paul's missionary principles. Luke doesn't formally state these principles. Instead, he states the facts and lets the principles shine uh, through the story. And the first principle is this. If you're taking notes, this is the very first principle, that Paul limits his ministry to the Roman Empire. Paul limits his ministry to the Roman Empire. And with an economy of words, we're to see, and uh, as Acts progresses, that Paul is sent uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Roman Empire, and especially to its influential uh, cities, uh, to bring uh, God's light. He's God's chosen instrument for this purpose. And when you see that, it helps you understand the book of Acts itself. It's why the book of Acts ends with Paul in the Roman capital. He's finished his ministry uh, when he gets there. But this principle uh, that missions is called to work in specific geographic areas has many, many implications for global missions, for national missions, and uh, our mission as a church and individuals. We should expect that missionary candidates are going to feel a call to go to a particular part of the world. That's normal. There's nothing odd about that. It's in keeping with what we see here in Paul. And churches, too, uh, have specific areas they're called uh, to reach. Uh, For a number of years, uh, my wife and I worshipped at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, and I served uh, briefly on the staff there. And as I served on the staff, I became acquainted with how great a draw that congregation had in Philadelphia. It drew uh, people from across the river from New Jersey. It drew people up in the Northeast. Uh, And if you know the geography of uh, Philadelphia, even out on the main line, people traveled 35 miles and more to be part of this church. But the church's 
energies were focused on reaching the community they lived in near Center City, Philadelphia. And uh, this is the same challenge that most churches in metropolitan areas today with the advent of transportation like the automobile face, that people commute uh, in uh, to a church that's, of course, located in a particular place. And it's important for a church to discern what that ministry area is that it's called to serve. But it's also important for you as an individual. You each have individual ministry fields if you're believers. Do you know what yours is? One way to, to figure this out is to ask God to show you three to five people that he's placed in your life who are your personal mission field who you should seek to befriend and get to know and understand and find ways to connect with and serve, and ultimately with the hope that you'll have the opportunity to share with them about the most important things in life, one of which is your faith. Now, this is a survival story. Uh, Paul survives being stoned. Now, don't think pebble. Don't think a stone you might skip on a pond. Now, you understand this is building material. In the ancient world, uh, when uh, buildings were built, often they were built on top of the last building, and there's often a lot of rubble lying around. These are substantial stones. And so if you were stoned, you would almost certainly be crippled, and you likely would die. So why is it that Paul gets stoned here? Well, Paul and Barnabas entered the synagogue in Iconium. We really need the story. And they spoke very effectively, but not everybody uh, on that Saturday liked what they heard. As they heard Paul expound the Old Testament and the pattern in chapter 13 we looked at last week is the pattern that Luke wants us to see of what ordinarily uh, was preached in the synagogue by Paul. As he opens up the Old Testament, announces the expectation that there would be a king greater than David uh, coming. Uh, Paul announces that Jesus is that person to uh, to expect, and that this Jesus is God actually uh, become man. And some of the Jews who heard this understood Paul to be saying that they should worship not the God of Moses, but the God who came in the person of Jesus. And they immediately thought of those passages in the Old Testament that talk about how you should respond to somebody who encourages an Israelite to follow another god. The prescribed response is death by stoning. But here's the thing that really, if you think about this story a little bit, should be stirred in you. Just how did the Jews gained the cooperation of these non-Jewish people and rulers. These are rather strange bedfellows. Just what did the Jews say to poison their minds? How did they enlist them in their cause? Well, very likely they said one of two things. They said either that Paul and Barnabas were atheists because they only worshipped one God, or... Uh, that their religion, their profession that Jesus is Lord, challenged Caesar, who is Lord. In other words, they were either traitors to Rome or they were atheists because 
the people in the ancient world were polytheists, and they thought anybody who didn't recognize there were more than one God was an atheist. Both of these charges were commonly made about Christians in the early uh, centuries of the church. Paul and Barnabas, though, hear word about this plot, and they go next to uh, Lystra. Now, it's a small place. It's a frontier town. It happens to be a Roman colony, but it's on the very edge of the Roman Empire. There wasn't much Greek influence. There weren't enough Jews to have a synagogue, and so Paul uh, engages in street preaching to people who are rural. And like rural people everywhere, they cling tight to the old ways, the old way of life. And as Paul is entering uh, the city, there's a man uh, who's a cripple. Uh, he's been crippled from birth. Paul makes eye contact. He discerns that this man has the faith to be healed. He's healed, and people are amazed. And what happens next happens in Lycosian. And Paul and Barnabas, it takes a little while for them to figure out what's actually going. They figure it out when priests from the temple of Zeus arrive ready to offer sacrifices to them, whom they've identified as two uh, gods, Zeus and Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas are horrified, and Paul dissuades the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who've already been angered by Paul and want to put him uh, to death, arrive. They win the crowd over. Paul is stoned, And amazingly, when the disciples gather around him, he's alive. And it isn't very many days before he goes back into that city. Now, there's two sets of questions this raises. One is, how is it the crowd went from calling them gods and being ready to sacrifice to them to murderous rejection? Just how did the Jews from Antioch and Iconium flip the crowds? And the second set of questions, which we don't have uh, time to explore today, is, is Paul a coward or a nutcase? How do we explain Paul's choices? He flees one city to avoid stoning, gets stoned another, and goes right back into that same uh, city. What's up with that? Well, we don't have time to look at this. And the first question is, we get a lot of help from a Roman writer named Ovid, who tells a story. It's a local legend. So the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes, according to this legend, came to the area disguised as men. And they tried to find hospitality. They visited a thousand homes, and nobody would uh, take them in except some very poor uh, elderly people. And they put on the table everything they had to eat. When uh, the wine was refilled, they became aware that these were not men. They were uh, gods. And then the couple was taken up uh, to a hill and they watched the gods flood the entire region of those inhospitable uh, people. And they watched their own home trance uh, formed into a large temple with a gilded roof. Now, the people of Lystra aren't going to make the same mistake twice. And when a crippled man is healed, they reach what, on the basis of their beliefs, makes complete sense. These are the gods among us. They've come again to test our hospitality. And that explains their willingness to worship. But how did the Jews turn them? Well, it's right there in the text. It's the message that he spoke. 
He challenged their commitment to Zeus and Hermes. He said these were no gods. Look again, if you have your Bible still open, to verse 15, or listen closely. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, Paul is saying, these things that you call gods are no gods at all. In fact, we can't choose our own gods. There is one true living God, the creator of all things. He's upheld all things, and he's been generous towards you. He's given you rains and the bounty of your uh, crops. All these things you enjoy come from uh, him. And then he summons them to turn from these empty things. He says, repent of your idolatry and take hope the living God uh, is speaking to you. Now, there's more going on here than meets the eye. You see, this is the second and third principles Paul enunciates. The second principle that guides biblical mission is this. Paul directly confronts and challenges their cherished religion and worldview. He critiques the very fabric of pagan cultural life. And it's woven together. You, we're going to talk about it separately, but it's, but it's really there inseparable. The third principle is this. Paul adapts to his audience. His speech is adapted to the Lakotians. Now, this principle, he confronts and challenges not just their religion, but their whole culture. And he adapts to his audience. So let me unpack each one. In the second one, Paul confronts and challenges not just the religious commitments of these people, but the very fabric of pagan cultural life. Calvin Rose, a New Testament uh, scholar, I'm going to use some of his uh, language, but many, many uh, students of pagan history and culture would tell you that we as moderns don't really get what's going on here. And that's because, to use Rose's words, to affirm that God has created the heaven and the earth is to name the entire complex of the religiousness of idolatry and to assign to it ignorance. Pagan religion only knows nature. It does not know God. And when... Uh, Luke is writing about idolatry in the Gospels' encounter with it. You need to understand that religion in antiquity isn't a category that can be separated from the rest of life. You see, as Westerners, we tend to think, and, and our culture tells us, that religion and ritual are private. And we live an entirely other uh, public life. But I can tell you, there's no one in the ancient world who would understand that idea. That would be completely foreign to them. They don't think or live in those categories. You see, they just can't separate their worship from their life. And so ancient religion is a pattern of uh, practices and beliefs that are inextricably interwoven in the fabric of ancient culture. 
Hence, to call into question pagan religion is actually to call into question the entire fabric of pagan life and uh, culture. And when you do that, when you pull on religion, you unravel everything. It all falls apart. And this is why the Christian message is so subversive every time it confronts paganism in the book of Acts. It's why it was threatening to the pagan priests and crowds there in Lystra, to the owners of the slave in the colony, magistrates in Philippi, to the philosophers and political authorities in Athens, to the musicians and craftsmen in Ephesus. And it's really hard for us because church and state are separated and we're drawn to think of them as one is private and the other is public. That somehow we are free from cultural idols. It's hard for us to see that. And it's hard for us to see and hear this message uh, from the, from in the shoes of the people who heard it in uh, Lystra. An American aid worker in Nepal uh, was traveling with a number of other North Americans along a highway. And they're driving along the road and there was there was a big rock in the road. The road was paved around this rock. It wasn't too big to actually be moved, but the reason they paved around it was, to the Nepalese, this rock was sacred. Now, the Westerners noticed it, of course, and they uh, smirked for the, at the locals for keeping it in place. It was a big rock, after all, right in the middle of the road, but the locals rarely ever noticed it. It was simply a, a given that they're sacred rocks and you build roads around them. But to the Americans, it was plainly uh, visible. My point is this. Every culture has big rocks in the middle of the road. And we have to ask, what are ours? What's sacred in our culture? What are the idols that foreigners would recognize that are overlooked and assumed by us. This is just how life is. What does conversion to the living God from our idols means? Well, it involves a rejection of idolatry, of recognizing they're worthless and embracing the living God. So you have to understand exactly what an idol is uh, to do that. Well, Frederick Buechner uh, puts it this way, idolatry is the practice of ascribing absolute value to things of relative worth. And when you put it that way, you can see anything can be made to an idol, a person or a group of people, money, nationalism, patriotism, family, an authentic sexual experience and expression, morality, drugs, body image, any kind of identity, a gender identity, a political identity, having the perfect house, the perfect job, the perfect relationship. You get the idea. Anything can be elevated to being of absolute value. What's the antidote? Well, there's four things. God-focused worship is the first antidote. And that means we have to break through the tendency 
uh, to be narcissistic in worship. Worship is not about what you get out of it. I don't mean that worship shouldn't edify you. It should. When it's done right and well, it should edify. But it's really not about you. The question we ought to be asking is, was God pleased with what I and we together offered him this morning? Related to this is the need to resist the cult of personality. And Christians can and do, like any other group of people, elevate a person in such a way that they become blind to their limitations, to their failings, and even to their abuse. Another important antidote to resist idolatry is inspired biblical teaching. In Acts, Luke elevates the word of God over the deeds done. He does this consistently. The spectacular takes second place to the inspired interpretation of Scripture. And this kind of of teaching produces spiritual growth, and it results in maturity in people. Now, I can't unpack all of that, but there's one more antidote, and it is to guard against the infection of idolatry. And this is less about looking out for the bad and more about learning what's good. I'm told that banks don't train their tellers to recognize counterfeit money by becoming familiar with all examples of counterfeits. Instead, what they do is they require their employees to become very familiar with the feel of authentic money. And once they do, they routinely discern the feel of true money. And the same principle applies to many, many areas of uh, life, from uh, good uh, food uh, to good exercise uh, to uh, uh, good uh, writing to good music. You can tell if you're becoming more mature by answering just four questions. Is my heart becoming softer, especially to the things of God? Am I more thankful today than I was this time last week? Am I patient in suffering? And is fear diminishing in my life? Do I have more anxiety or less? Now, Paul's speech effectively confronted uh, the Lysterians. Why? Well, because he adapts the message of the gospel. He presents biblical truth and summons them to repent with words and arguments that reach their hearts and minds. He didn't tell them things they only wanted to hear, but he does give them hope. He tells them hope is only to be found by turning away from what's empty, their idols, to the living God. He does not appeal to them with quotes from the Old Testament as he does a Jewish audience in the synagogues. They wouldn't have responded to that. They wouldn't probably have understood them uh, had he uh, given them. They didn't recognize the Bible as having any authority. But he does develop at every point, just in this short summary Luke gives us of what he said, biblical ideas At every point, these are biblical ideas about idolatry as God is creator and sustainer of his goodness. He articulates all these ideas in his letters, and they're written large in the Old Testament. 
And what he does next is he connects it to their experience of nature and tells them that all the goodness that they have in the, in the food and life comes from the one true God. Now, this action that Luke records again and again in this uh, book is a principle that Paul himself articulates in 1 Corinthians 9. And I only read one verse of it. I'm not going to read all of it because that would take too much time uh, this morning. But Paul says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant or a slave to all that I might win more. And then he goes on to say, To a Jew I've become as a Jew to win the Jews, to those under the law have become as one under the law, and so on and so forth. You can look that up later. But here's the thing you need to hear, because it's easy to miss. Paul says he makes himself a slave. Now, most slaves in the ancient world started out as people who were taken captive in war. That's where they came from. And... uh, Imagine that you've been uh, on the losing side and now you're a slave. Well, you're going to go off and have to learn another language, another culture. You're going to have to figure out how things are done in your master's household. And you're going to have to meet his expectations. That's your job assignment. And that's exactly what Paul's saying he does here. He adapts himself to people so they can understand with the goal that they might be one. Luke does this again and again. He shows this principle in action in the sermons and the speeches and the very short reports he gives of what Paul says. If you were to lay them side by side and take note of the audience, you would see this. It's just striking. In fact, every New Testament commentator in my library says, makes note of this and talks about this, especially at this, in this text. To the Jewish people, uh, Paul, Peter, Stephen say, Jesus is the hope of Israel. He's Israel's king. And to the Gentiles, the message is summarized as, Jesus is Lord, raised from the dead, repent, and be saved from the coming judgment. Our beloved Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of cultural adaptation when it talks about one of the most important and obvious expressions of every culture, its language. The Bible was given in mostly Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and Greek. And you have an interest in it. And the confession says it has to be translated. And gloriously, uh, for two millennium now, the church has been in the business of translating the scriptures so that you could hear them in a language that you understand. Indeed, there are a number of translation organizations today who recognize as they go into indigenous tribes that they need to translate not just in a trade language, but into the heart language so that people will hear the word of God now, in the way that their language shapes their culture and their perception and their way of thinking about uh, reality. And so it is. We have an abundance of Bibles. This one we're reading out of today is relatively new translation. People deem we need, keep needing new ones. The, the ones that were written in 1901 uh, don't work well anymore. 
Where did such an idea come from? Is Paul caving in to liberalism or some progressive influence? No, not at all. God himself adapts and accommodates to reveal himself to us. He contextualized the most amazing and incomprehensible expression of this is that God became a human being. God becomes man. It's at the heart of what we confess as Christians. And he embraced not just human limitations, but he was culturally bound. He was born a Jew under the law. He lived in Galilee under Roman rule. I could go on. But if we are going to reach those who are our family, our friends, the people who live in our city, and our nation, we have to confront by adapting, and we adapt to be able to confront. You simply can't challenge the ideas in another culture that are their idols without adapting uh, to their way of speaking in order to talk to them. They won't understand. You simply can't read them verses from the Bible and say, this is the truth. Don't you see it? No, they don't. They will not only not recognize the authority from which you speak, your argument will have no force uh, for them. And that's hard uh, work. Jaron Bars and Francis Schaeffer are two people who worked hard to show people what it looks like uh, to do that. Now, I'm not as smart as either of them. <laughs> I have to work at a different level in my relationships, and probably you will as well. But what this passage challenges us with in really the book of Acts is that we have to get out of the salt shaker. We can't influence uh, the world or people or family or friends if we keep uh, all that's important here really in our private lives. If we isolate ourselves, um, we're going to have to become students of people and really of the times we live in if we want to speak effectively the message of the gospel. And we'll know when we've done that, because when it's heard, the gospel will produce a result, a, relax, a reaction. It will either bring hope and joy, and people will turn to the living God, or result in people's rejection, and some will become utterly hostile. Well, that's the message of this passage. Three principles. They're actually all worked out in the life of Jesus, our Savior, who didn't go to the whole world, but just to the people of Israel, and who, who didn't walk the roads that Paul does through Rome, but stayed geographically very close to where he was born, who both confronted the religious idols and the political idols of his day, and adapted. And he did it in such a winsome way 
that the world has never been the same since. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we ask for ears to hear. And so we ask now that you'd seal to our hearts and minds what you've said to us. Now, Father, let us be uh, Bereans in what we've heard and search out whether these things, in fact, are taught in this book. And grant us the humility of heart and mind uh, to be able to respond to what you say. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, the incarnate Christ.